days out from the Massachusetts primary election, a bunch of races still seem very much up in the air, and one of them has quickly become a drama-filled contest with sexual assault allegations taking center stage in the race for an office that would oversee prosecuting such crimes. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine. Joining me on today's pre-primary episode of the podcast are Boston Globe columnist Joan Vinaki and GBH News politics editor Peter Kadzis. Joan, thanks for being here. Thanks for asking. And Peter, it's great to have you with us. Wonderful to be here, Michael. So I'll be honest, a few days ago, we're planning out this episode, uh, and we thought we'd be taking a look at some of the more interesting statewide races on the September 6th ballot, and, and we will get to that. But first, we want to dig in on what's become really the talk of the town and, and beyond, uh, and that is the Democratic primary for Suffolk County District Attorney. So uh, uh, just several days ago, and I'm going to sort of uh, clear the air here that we're recording this on Friday. So uh, things that may unfold over the weekend are not going to be sort of in front of us to talk about. So earlier uh, uh, this week, on Tuesday, the Boston Globe published a story reporting that Ricardo Arroyo, who's challenging the sitting DA, Kevin Hayden, was the subject of two investigations involving allegations of sexual assault back when he was 18 and 19 years old. Arroyo, who's 34 years old, not only denies ever committing any sexual assault, he claims he never even knew about the allegations until asked about them days ago by Globe reporters. This is despite police records suggesting otherwise. So that, But that's really just the beginning, I think, of the craziness that's unfolded here. Um, so, uh, uh, Joan, what, what do you make uh, of how this thing has played out uh, initially in the first couple of days and the way Arroyo has responded to the, to, to the Globe story? Well, first I'll say that initially this race looked like it was going to be all about who's the next Rachel Rollins, right? And Ricardo Arroyo was making that case with a lot of help from the progressive community, uh, from Mayor Michelle Wu to Elizabeth Warren to all the key progressives in Boston, painting himself as the person who was reformer who could take on this job. And, and um, Kevin Hayden was the centrist who was going to roll back time. Now suddenly we have um, a story with sort of explosive allegations that go back to Arroyo's high school days. And I think what's interesting is he could have just denied the allegations and that would have led to a kind of a he said, she said story. Instead, he made it about, this is the first I'm ever hearing about it, which put his credibility on the line in a very different way. He's now trying to change the story into the leak and who did it, and that Kevin Hayden did something unethical and perhaps unlawful. Um, I don't think he's been that successful at it, but um, we shall see. And, and Peter, what was your kind of you know first take as this as this really exploded uh, on the scene? Well, first of all, just a general impression of the whole DA's race. I mean, I've been following Boston politics for a long time. And this is maybe the most brutal race I can remember. Um, uh, It's just, you know, bare knuckle boxing. Um, I agree with Joan that rather than saying nothing happened, you know, I was a young man, you know, 18, 19 years old. Sometimes incidents are misinterpreted, but 
to deny that he had any knowledge of this when there were two police reports saying that this was investigated has really left him very little room to maneuver politically. It's a tough one. I think it's a tough one for him. I think the big question is how many people other than folks like ourselves are really paying attention? I also, this may be a very brutal election for DA, but the the whole political season, um, I find very underwhelming. Um, I just don't find a lot of people paying attention. And what I'm using as a yardstick or, you know, the me walking around and talking to friends and relatives and people at the coffee shop and the junkies are tuned into this, but I wonder how many other people are. No, I think that's a good point. Um, although it's possible, I guess that, you know, something like this sort of, you know, kind of makes a dent in that in a way that, you know, just the normal course of, of can of the, you know, what had, you know, you could sort of say has been a, sort of sleepy campaign season, maybe it breaks through in a way because it's salacious. It's certainly not just kind of who's going to prosecute low-level misdemeanors and who is going to take it on a case-by-case basis. I mean, that was kind of the terms under which things were being uh, debated. I, I, I think the Boston City Council could play a big role in this. Um, you know, the City Council was on summer recess this last week, and um, when they get back to business on Wednesday, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if this makes it to the council floor at all. Um, If it does, I can see the story getting a different set of legs. Right. So I just want to sort of get back to this point that Joan raised that Arroyo has really kind of like sort of doubled down on the denials. It's not just denying any kind of impropriety or, or, you know, improper actions, but denying knowing about it. And as the Globe reported, uh, at least one clear reason or, you know, that he would be reluctant to say, yes, that all happened, but nothing came of it is that in applying for his law license, he, uh, you know, he checked off or, or answered a question about whether he'd ever been the subject of any investigation for any felony or misdemeanor by saying no. And it's, you know, it's a very broadly asked question. It doesn't ask if you've been convicted or even charged, just the subject of an investigation. So it's been portrayed that that's kind of what has boxed him in, in a way, on this. And I just wanted to sort of touch on one thing. Joan, you had a great piece, I think, the day that the, you know, online, the day that the Globe story came out in print about, you know, will progressives continue to stand with and believe Arroyo? And you sort of started it out by asking, does the truth matter anymore? And that, um, uh, you know, that this is just sort of the latest test of that. And I I mean, I can't help but think that, uh, you know, that kind of question, I guess maybe it's always sort of bounces around in, 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 in very partisan political affairs, but it's certainly something that you have to say, Donald Trump has kind of given incredible legs to this idea or this issue that it just doesn't matter whether you tell the truth or not to people who are dug in and determined to be with you based on, you know, politics or ideology. And and I felt like that was kind of what was so compelling about you asking the question and that we've seen for the most part, it seems like progressive 
uh, activists and elected officials are either sort of staying with Arroyo or they're not sort of they're not jumping ship en masse. Uh, we've seen a couple people pull back their endorsements. But just talk about this question about does the truth matter anymore and, and what does it mean for our politics? I mean, I should say that, you know, I think in your column, you, you know, you, you said that you find his denial of knowing about the investigation not very credible or believable. Right. Well, I'm sort of sorry I left out the, the Trumpian reference in that column. <laughs> to say I was thinking about it when I wrote it. Well, I think what's happened in the aftermath is, you know, is fascinating to use an overused word. Here you have, you know, these top women politicians, Elizabeth Warren, Ayanna Pressley, Michelle Wu, who have all stood up in the past um, and during the so-called Me Too movement, um, who found... Brett Kavanaugh, completely um, unacceptable to be the, a Supreme Court justice on the basis of a, you know, allegation of, you know, sexual assault that went back to his high school years that I think he said he couldn't remember. He didn't do and he couldn't remember. Um, and it has that, Arroyo has kind of picked up that same narrative. They didn't have a police report on Brett Kavanaugh. As Peter pointed out, there are two here. I'd also like to throw out, you know, praise to the Globe team, Andrea Estes and the other reporters who, who, you know, broke that story. So we've got this police report. We've got evidence, at least in a police report, that that allegations were made that Ricardo Arroyo uh, was questioned, and his answer is, I can't remember. And so far. Basically, everyone's stuck with them except Joe Kennedy, who no longer holds elective office, and Ed Flynn. And it, it will be interesting to see what the city council does. But the female politicians who have spoken out, again, you must believe women, um, sexual assault is a terrible thing, uh, serious allegations are still with Arroyo. And it, you know, it sort of brings to mind the old saw, you know, uh, you know where you stand depends on where you sit, right? It just feels like... Uh, and I mean, I finding, I mean, there's even been, uh, there've been some people sticking with him. I think city councilor Kendra Lara, who's said she's herself been a victim of assault in the past, but she and, and the Arroyo campaign have sought to turn this whole thing around, including this kind of bizarre spectacle that I was at this press conference uh, that he held to address this, but, but at which they first had a, a lawyer, a woman who claims to be representing one of the women involved back in 2007, who said, you know, not only does she now completely deny that anything happened, but she she said the only one victimizing her now is Kevin Hayden. And it's quite a, uh, again, I, I have to say, it's sort of a Trumpian move to sort of just turn everything around and sort of, and, and you know, the best defense is a good offense. So they're, 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 uh, I, again, I, I think you, you said it, you don't know if it's very effective, but that's certainly been been the approach. Yeah, I always hold on to my wallet when um, public figures try to focus on who the leaker was rather than the substance of the leak. Um, Elizabeth Warren uh, uh, called for uh, Brett Kavanaugh's impeachment after he was uh, approved as a Supreme Court, as an associate justice to the Supreme Court, um, the silence from the higher, higher profile progressive Democrats is just uh, deafening. Um, it, it is really something. 
I mean, isn't someone even going to say, geez, I'd like a more convincing explanation. Right. <laughs> and you could right. even be polite about it. So I, I yeah, I feel like the, the high profile politicians have mostly sort of sort of been ducking for cover. Uh, Mayor Michelle Wu, who's just out and about everywhere, didn't seem to have that luxury. I mean, reporters kind of got to her very quickly because she's just so, so present out in the community. And she sort of said she's, you know, it's troubling the allegations. And then she said, she said, we'll have to see how the story evolves, which uh, I, I, I kind of put her in this holding pattern. But what if it doesn't evolve in the next few days? This is what it is. And, you know, there's often uncertainty and ambiguity or, you know, some element of that. Uh, so where does this where does this leave her? Well, I think one thing she could do is um, release with redactions the police reports. She ended up doing that with the Patrick Rose case and at least let you know the public see what the Globe note has seen in terms of what actually it was reported in those reports. That's one thing she could do. Another thing she could do is you know call for um, Arroyo to waive his lawyer um, client privilege with uh, the lawyer who represented him from back at that time. That's if she really wanted to know more about this case. I'm not sure that she does because she supports Arroyo. So it, that's kind of an interesting twist to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's very interesting that you raise the parallel with the Rose case. In April of 2021 on WBUR, Arroyo, uh, issued uh, an impassioned call for transparency. I mean, um, his words were something like, we need to know what they know and what they did or didn't do about things. Um, I I mean, there was, he was very clear that the public had a real right to know in the Patrick Rose case. Obviously, it doesn't apply to himself. This whole thing reminds me of Eisenhower and Nixon when, um, you know, Nixon was accused. Not, of, not, not, not to date yourself at all, Peter, right? No, <laughs> but, you know, when, when Nixon gave his checkers speech, when it was accused, he was, you know, uh, the recipient of, a, uh, of a, a political slush fund. And um, he gave that speech because Eisenhower wanted to see how Nixon would play out. Now, using the Nixonian comparison, I I don't think Arroyo um, succeeded the way Nixon did in putting the issue behind him. Well, I'll go back to the Trumpian thing, because I think, you know, let's face it, you know, Trump was (laughs) Trump was accused of all kinds of, you know, sexual assault. And the people that, you know, wanted to vote for Donald Trump voted for Donald Trump you know, despite that. And a version of that also played out with Joe Biden. He came under some accusations for inappropriate touching or whatever you want to call it. And the people who wanted to vote for Joe Biden voted for Joe Biden. And it may very well be that um, the people who want to vote for Ricardo Arroyo, because what they think he stands for as an ex-DA is more important than whether or not he lied about this. That is the story of Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. Women were largely silent because they they liked Bill Clinton in toto, as opposed to the the taking a narrow look at Bill Clinton. Um, I, I just want to say too, it, it's important that to note that Arroyo's never been charged, but he was investigated, and that's all the Globe story alleges. 
the Globe story alleges that he was twice investigated for what, let's say, sexual impropriety when he was a teenager, a late right. teenager. And um, I mean, one other thing just to mention here in terms of the dynamic of the race is that, um, I mean, Ricardo Arroyo appeared to have a lot of momentum uh, a week ago. I mean, every every kind of progressive politician around, uh, with only a couple of exceptions, was with him. He has incredible name recognition. Uh, you know, he comes from a family that's run for offices in Boston, and even conveniently, his father holds kind of one of these obscure county positions. So even the name has been on on the ballot across the county, the very area that that he's now going to be running in. Um, and and Hayden, I have to say, uh, you know, seems like a perfectly competent lawyer and has a, as a seasoned prosecutor looked kind of hapless as a politician campaigning. I mean, he was he was just not comfortable in his own skin. You know, he was kind of forcing himself out there to try to kind of learn the ropes in in this kind of odd world of of politics and campaigning that you have to do in order to get to the office that he says he's the most qualified to to continue in. But Hayden also you know, was until a week ago, seemed like the guy back on his heels. Also, thanks to your colleagues at the Globe, Joan, who who wrote a piece, uh, uh, you know, raising some serious questions about his judgment in the short time that he's been in the office, just to fill in the in the gap. He was appointed just in January by Governor Baker to the vacancy in the DA's office. And in that time, he kind of inherited an ongoing investigation involving a couple of transit police officers. And uh, to kind of cut to the chase, the allegation in the stories from the Globe is that he, his office or his top uh, lieutenant, told uh, lawyers for these transit officers who, who, who looked like they'd engaged in some pretty serious misconduct that, you know, that the, the, the office was not going to be going forward with prosecution. So, uh, I mean, Hayden looked not only like a kind of guy a little bit out of his element politically, but he looked like a pretty seriously wounded candidate at that point. Right. He was, you know, that story help, was helping Arroyo make the case that he was the reformer, he is the reformer, and that Hayden is, you know, back to the future or back to the kind of prosecutor that shuts his eyes when cops do something bad. Um, but I, I will point out that that transit police case, as well as a package of like six or seven other cases involving investigations of police, had been handed had been investigated but no resolution from Rachel Rollins so Hayden and you know inherited all those cases and it really isn't unusual for DAs to it's not a good thing believe me it's not a good track record but even someone who's a reformer like Rollins um, it's not that easy to um, you know prosecute police officers right well I'd, I'd, I'd like to say that when I wrote about the um when I wrote about the transit case, I said it was a perfect political hit in that it was an example of um, the, the, the recently found power of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. But I closed when 17 other officials called for Hayden's resignation, uh, joining a royal. But I did end my column saying, I really wonder who dropped the dime. You know? I, and I was going to bring that up, Peter, but I do at the, you know, sort of toward the top of your piece, you called it sort of an orchestrated hit, perf I think perfectly executed by the Arroyo camp. So, I mean, maybe there's uncertainty about specifically who did it, but you seem to imply that, uh, that you know, this story 
probably found its way, you know, to reporters' attentions through the Arroyo camp. So it's almost kind of a parallel. We keep hearing the charges in the case of the sexual allegations against Arroyo. And um, I mean, I sort of feel like, yeah, and the sun rises in the east. I mean, this is, you know, eh, I I keep likening it to, uh, since we're talking about DAs and prosecutions, kind of the elements of, you know, crime, they always say, you know, you need motive and opportunity, right? And so we know that, you know, in campaigns, there's always a motive to, to sort of have unflattering news about your opponent come up. And then there's just the question of opportunity, you know, who had access. And, you know, Arroyo's tried to suggest this came straight from Hayden. I feel like in that case, there's a lot of folks, you know, it's like, what do they say? You know, it's like the death, I don't know, you, you died, but you don't even know where it, where the where the knife came from, because I think broadly speaking, the law enforcement community is not excited about the idea of Ricardo Arroyo as DA. There's all sorts of places that that could have originated uh, with. Probably the right time to drop in the Larry Mulcher quote, right? Boston is all about sports, politics, and revenge. Yeah, exactly. Um, Very good. Yes. <laughs> I mean, the rest of the races have kind of lacked that, but this one is just a throwback to oh. politics as a blood sport. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the again, we, the press, are reveling in it. But to get to Peter's point, I don't know how much of it is filtered down to the man and woman on the street. I and mean, the media don't have the impact that that they used to have. Um, yes, it's in the Globe. Yes, radio stations are right, you know, talking about it. Yes, it's on TV. Um, but it's also August, um, kind of the doldrums of summer. I, I really don't know what the impact is. I guess we'll know on primary day. Right. And voting has already started. Yes. Early voting starts officially on Saturday. But um, voting by mail has started long before that. I, I remember it was several days ago, but Mayor Wu said, I think it was 141,000 ballots had been received in Boston. So those, let's say 100,000 plus ballots were cast without any knowledge of this, right. any awareness of it. Well, just to sort of uh, pivot, as Joan suggested about the other races, I, I sort of feel like this one, somebody said to me, geez, could we could we have some other candidates for DA? I mean, I think that's a little bit of the feeling people are having is like, wait a minute, like these are both candidates with some, some you know, serious wounds. Um, but in this case, you know, you know there, there may be a wish for other candidates. And I feel like in some of the statewide races, the word we're getting from the most recent polls is people don't even know that there are any candidates or they still don't know who either who they are or there's still large numbers of, of voters that remain undecided. So I just wonder in the few minutes we have left, looking at some of the other big statewide races, um, you know, if there's any kind of broad themes that you all see playing out, and, and I'll just sort of tee it up with one that sort of strikes me. And, I, and, and, and I'd be curious to hear if you think this is really different than other years, is that this effort by candidates to desperately try to find sort of a broad slate of powers and things that they could do to further some, you know, political agenda through what, you know, are usually thought of as pretty obscure statewide offices. So I don't know if either of you want to, you know, bite that one off. I'm thinking about the auditor's race, secretary of state, and then attorney general, which I think, you know, the public is a little more familiar with, and there's clearly a broader portfolio of powers. But even in that race, I think we've seen some element of that. Well, that's clearly an issue in the Secretary of State's race, right? Uh, Tanisha Sullivan 
has has been pitching this idea that this is a should be a very activist office and not only should um, the Secretary of State be an advocate for more voting rights, which you know I think makes some sense, that you know that this is a, case, a place where you would take a lead on something like abortion rights. Um, so I, I think it's an interesting argument. I don't know how it how it flies with the general public. At the same time, um, the polls show that there is huge. You know, there's a big undecided in every race, including yeah. Secretary of State. So I don't know how many people even know she's making that case. Right. I mean, um, Scott Lehigh has a great column interpreting the results of that poll from Mass Inc. Um, see, I, I, I think the Secretary of State's race, I think the mistake that uh, Tanisha Sullivan has made is because the public doesn't know her, her attempt to nationalize a local race just isn't that going to be that successful or may not be that successful. I shouldn't get ahead of myself. Massachusetts is not Georgia. I mean, we don't have the voting problems that exist in other parts of the United States, like Texas or Georgia or Mississippi. Now, if you take a candidate like Michelle Wu, who was already well known to the public when she ran for mayor of Boston, she was able to bring national themes very successfully into her ultimately successful mayoral campaign. And I think that Tanisha Sullivan, as a, a, a a political newcomer, a newcomer to electoral politics just doesn't have that benefit. Does that make sense? Yes, and I agree. <laughs> okay. Right. I wasn't asking for agreement. I wasn't sure if I was making sense. <laughs> I, I was also going to sort of suggest or predict that the next week or so, because of so many undecideds and that we may see, usually at the end of a campaign, don't the strategists say you close the deal with a positive message? I think because so few, there are so many undecideds that some people may try to close a deal with a more negative message. Um, I think in the Lieutenant Governor's race, we're sort of seeing that with the ads that um, Eric Lesser is running against Kim Driscoll, the mayor of um, Salem. You know, he's accusing, you know, linking her to a pack and just kind of a the whole, you know, the sleaziness of, of money and that she may be in the tank to some developer. Um, it's like, okay, at the last minute, I've got to distinguish myself and the way to do it is to make my opponent look bad. Yeah, in, in she doesn't strike me as, as being the, the uh, uh, epitome of evil. Uh, the, the biggest problem Eric Lesser has, and he's an admirable public servant, admirable public servant, is he's from the western part of the state. The last time someone from the western part of the state was elected to a constitutional officer was Foster Furcolo. I know I'm dating myself again here. That but, was the Eisenhower um, era, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, to me, one of the interesting sub-themes is um, who does organized labor support? I, I, I think that in the race for um, auditor, what's interesting is um, what do the endorsements say about the various candidates? Desaglio has huge support from organized labor and public employee unions. That to me is a more important mark 
than what they both say they'll do with the office because they're both very energetic. They're both dedicated public servants. They have some great ideas, but to me, it's who's supporting whom and f what can we expect as a result of that. I, I thought Dempsey made a brilliant move when he decided to release his uh, answers to the different citizens groups. Where does he stand on the whole range of issues? Um, again, I think a lot of what's going on right now will be much clearer after the vote. You know, when we can see how and why these endorsements really make make a difference. I've never, you know, it's really only been since we've had early voting that there's been such an emphasis on endorsements. You know, most of us would shrug our shoulders and say, you know, who really cares? I think that's one of the things, the, the thing that struck me the most in the Arroyo case was the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers withdrew their support for him. Um, and that's a lot of feet they put in the ground on Election Day. Uh, did they also, or was it the iron workers? I'm just trying to... I thought it was the IBEW. I could be wrong. Wouldn't be the first time I misspoke. Yeah. And then just lastly, I, one thing that I'm struck by in these statewide races, at, at least in several of them, we're hearing people talk about um, sort of putting forward their lived experience has become kind of one of the lines of the of the season. And I'm thinking we've heard that from Andrea Campbell, Tanisha Sullivan, and also uh, Diana DeZaglio, uh, you know, you know, talking about being raised by a single parent. And 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 I don't know if that resonates. It's almost like they certainly can talk about the job and their qualifications that that to me, that is a little bit of a uh, he's come up a couple times now, Bill Clinton. I, I, I'm not saying he was the first one to do it, but, you know, there was a time, I mean, now if you really want to date yourself, I was not alive when Franklin Roosevelt was in office. But, you know, it, you know, nobody minded that, you know, he came from this, you know, wealthy, you know, high society family. It was a different time. But at a certain point, post-FDR, and uh, I certainly think that Clinton was maybe part of it, you know, the man from hope, it became this kind of idea about biography and, you know, don't you want somebody who's kind of, you know, kind of come up, you know, sort of, you know, with challenges and seen the kind of tough side of life in these offices? And I don't know how much that plays out with people, but I, I do think there's something to it that just the sheer qualifications alone, you know, that gets you somewhere maybe in a job interview for a certain kind of off, uh, you know, position in out in the non-political world. But, you know, and I like Quentin Palfrey for AG keeps saying, I've been in all these roles and it doesn't seem to really be resonating that much with voters. It, it, you know, people make voting decisions for all sorts of complicated reasons. Well, I think lived experience works better in some, running for some offices than others. I'm not sure it matters all that much to state auditor. Well, as, as you said, we will, we will soon find out on primary day. So I want to thank you both for a great conversation, uh, Joan Vanaki from the Boston Globe, Peter Kadzis from GBH News, no W anymore. Uh, thanks, thanks to you both. Thanks for having me. Thanks, it was fun. And this has been another episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week.